Welcome back to Beyond the Black Box. In our last episode, we had finished by giving kind of a hint that we have some thoughts about how errorlessness and agency might be in conflict. And that is what we're going to dive deeper into today. Yeah, we have so many thoughts (laughs) about that. And the ways that we talk about errorlessness, because it is, I think, a really hot topic right now. There are a lot of people that are very excited about the idea of errorless learning. And we're not here to advocate for throwing it out. That's not to say that it is this bad thing. We're all talking about it wrong, but we want to add some nuance to the conversation and ask some questions because there are documented adverse effects of errorless learning and we don't often talk about those. And so just as with anything, we want to look at the practices that we're doing with a really critical eye and see if there is room for improvement or where it might be appropriate and where it might not. So we hope to give it the nuance it deserves, and it might turn into a multi-part series. We're going to do our best to touch on as much as we can. Absolutely. So in my travels having to do with you know, dog stuff, reading, listening, et cetera. One thing that I came across that I so appreciated was an interview with Dr. Susan Friedman. And it's all the way back from 2019, but the interviewer is trying to set her up to ask what her definition of errorless learning is. And he shares the common definitions that he's heard from dog training, which would include either that there are no errors happening or just that there are no errors the learner is aware of. And she stops and laughs and explains a time in a classroom when a student had started to answer a question about a definition of a term with, well, to me, it means. And she stopped the student and said, respectfully, I don't care what you think it means. We are asking what the actual definition is. And I've had so many of these moments coming into this world where I am trying to understand what a concept means and I am finding conflicting information, which is why I am so committed to starting by defining things and sharing, kind of making sure that we are all talking about the same thing when we say errorless learning. To start us off are kind of three definitions that I think we want to consider. So one is from the American Psychological Association, which is a method that prevents the production of incorrect answers during the learning period. For our second definition, I pulled from an expert, Dr. Friedman, um, who said in a 2016 paper that errorless learning would be a teaching approach that limits incorrect responses by means of carefully arranged teaching conditions. And finally, just acknowledging that colloquial definition that I've certainly heard a lot, which is either it doesn't mean there are no errors, including the idea that it has to do with how we, the human, respond to errors, that the dog should be unaware that there are, that there were errors, that we can even reinforce errors and that that's okay. So that's not really scientific errorlessness to Dr. Friedman's point, um, but I think it warrants inclusion in the discussion since it's commonly what I think people mean when we talk about errorlessness. Definitely. It is so important to note those different definitions because I've had many conversations where we are speaking about this idea of errorlessness. And I think just the the word by itself, errorlessness, just means, you know, there's no errors and we're not handling those errors. But errorless learning is its own methodical way of teaching towards a particular goal. Um, and so differentiating those things. And what are the kind of questions and concerns that we're going to be diving into that we brought up in the previous episode is the lack of agency that is inherent to a process that is so con- controlled by the instructor. And the idea behind it is that we're trying to limit the emotional experience, limit the 
um, experience of feeling wrong in that, getting to have a high rate of success, even a little bit, uh, believing that this is going to lead to better learning, which we're going to address a little bit later as well, by reinforcing a high rate of successful responses. They're not giving practice to, giving energy to, or brain space to incorrect responses that we don't want to see more of. And so in that, we have an inherently teacher-centered dynamic, which is not a bad thing in and of itself. But when we're talking about a teacher-centered versus a learner-centered approach, there is some major differences in sort of the balance of power, which is a big, important piece to how we're onboarding information. And where that information is coming from is a big piece of learning and successful learning as well. And so there are a couple little bullet points that I want to give for differentiating those two. In a teacher-centered lesson structure, the teacher holds all the power and the resources and is imparting them onto the students. They are the arbitrator of right and wrong and what the goal is and whether or not the student is achieving that goal. They are making assessments. And it's really a one-way process. In a learner-centered sort of instructional design, it is more collaborative. The learner has the ability to give input on the process, make choices about and with in the learning experience and be able to give input that might facilitate better learning on their part. So it's meant to be a more individualized and personalized process, which is very important as we all, I think, can imagine back on our learning experiences and think of times where a particular way of teaching or way of instructing just didn't work for us. And so that flexibility piece is important for that long-term retention, brings us into what does learning even mean? And so in learner-centered teaching, we have a really big question of what is an error? Because if we're not arbitrating it from the outside based on this goal piece, what is an error and what is the impact of the error if we don't have someone sitting there telling us, you're doing this wrong, this isn't the goal, this isn't the thing I've set out for you. We've got a lot of different questions that come up with that and the potential impacts that we've both seen documented and the things that maybe we don't have documented but certainly could exist to talk about. I think it's important to note that errorless learning was really developed in opposition to trial and error learning. And we know in human education that there are options beyond just those two. And it seems like maybe we got a little stuck in dog trainer animal training, thinking about either we sort of have to have the animal play around until they get it right. We're only reinforcing the right answers. Um, or we're just going to guide them right down this path so that the right answer is the only one available. And there are other ways to teach things. Um, and I think that we maybe sort of skipped, we found an alternative that that seemed better. Uh, we might have skipped a little bit considering what are additional alternatives that we could be looking at and what evidence exists for those. Definitely that. Yeah. And beyond what the teacher wants to what the learner needs and how do we know what the learner needs? Have we asked the learner what they need and what they want? Have we asked them what's relevant to them? There are so many things that um, I think can get overlooked in an errorless framework or in a trial and error framework too, but um, we're talking about errorlessness. So I'll stick to that one. (laughs) Definitely. And so if we, for the sake of this discussion, are defining errors, the way that I see them and the way that I'm seeing them defined in the literature, there are sort of two separate things that we're talking about. In the dog training world, errors seem to mean you're getting it wrong. Anytime you're getting it wrong, whether that's that you're just doing something that is sort of off of the goal path that we've imagined for you traveling towards that goal, or you're doing something that we don't like, whatever it may be, it is very much 
determined from our human perspective about what you should be doing. And it does not take into account why you're doing it and what benefit that may lead to you or acknowledge that other paths may exist toward that goal that we can still utilize and embrace that also honor the things that you may need to express along that path. And I'll circle back to that. The idea of errors is really seeming to come from an external point rather than an internal point when we're talking about it in both of these things and trying to rectify some middle ground there. What do you think, Jen? I've thought about this more from the human perspective as someone who's in education and an error being something that is wrong, but who who decides what's wrong, who's the arbiter of right and wrong, and sort of to what end? Um, is it wrong in this moment, but maybe someone's practicing a skill that's equally valuable? It just didn't serve the immediate goal. Um, and also just the idea, and Sarah, you've talked about this at, at length, but that that it's information, that it means um, just a data point to consider. What does it tell us about what the dog needs and wants or the person needs and wants rather than really adding a value judgment to what an error is or isn't? Absolutely. It really seems to centralize for me from a perspective of compliance. And I know that's a really uncomfortable space to reflect on as a force-free and positive reinforcement-based trainer and somebody who did cross over from methods that were certainly not those things. And so I experienced this a lot where I look back and I go, oh, maybe, maybe that's coming back into things a little bit where I'm really trying to control you. And I'm using kind things to do that. But I'm I'm seeking your compliance. I'm not seeking your input. I'm not seeking your opinions on this. I'm seeking your compliance and your ability to listen to me. And I'm going to make that very convincing with good things versus a growth mindset where we're really trying to cultivate the learning process and cultivate skills within the learner that allows them to generalize those skills to many environments and be successful rather than just that immediately reinforcing you're hearing me in this moment and you're doing this precise thing that I want you to do. And those things are not mutually exclusive, but they are really hard to move out of our own mindset, our own framework and opinions about this is best for you, or this is how you should get to that goal and see beyond those things and not even to understand that in other frameworks or other realms of learning, that there can be a process of experimentation and there could be a goal. And those things still may not be considered errors, or they may not have the same impact as errors as well. And flexibility is something that I think is hard to rectify with the currently existing errorless process. And yet we know how much it promotes learning when we think about learning in a broader sense, not just of accomplishing a goal, but acquiring knowledge, um, acquiring skills, that ability to experiment, to be flexible, to make mistakes, learn from them talk through them. You know, I would love to to think through later in this conversation, how we do this with dogs, how we actually make this happen. Because it sounds great. It sounds like great. Let's give them more control in this type of learning environment and not just control, but agency. Let's not just sort of lead them through one path that we have determined is the right path with the right goal. But how do we really be collaborative with our dogs and take their needs into consideration? These are all great questions. 
Absolutely. And I, I want to be very clear that I think that there there is middle ground there as well, that it is a spectrum and that there are stepping stones that you can take towards this process as you're feeling more comfortable with it. So it is not something where we're saying you have to toss out errorless learning. That's not the case. We will get into some of the effects that have been documented and some of the things that maybe weren't so positive about it. And maybe some ways that we can innovate on and make that process more aligned with goals that we may have today. We didn't have years ago or depending on where we are in our learning process altogether. And when I first crossed over from other methods, errorless learning seemed like an entirely new world. And that was a great step. So it is not to negate that process of evolution and growth, but it is for us to continue along that process. Absolutely. And it's very easy to see how this could be enticing. When we're talking about very precise skills, it allows allows us to go in with precision, to not spend a lot of time and frustration for ourselves. And so we're giving a lot of treats. We're not letting them make mistakes. What could possibly be the pitfalls of this? And it sounds incredibly kind. And I can completely understand that. In fact, I taught this way for a very long time. One of the major aspects that we see in this is that because it is so structured and it is so controlled and it is so incredibly incremental, there are not opportunities for the learner to give feedback, whether that's through body language or for opting out or for just expressing an alternative that might be more comfortable for them in this process. And I've seen it many times, especially when we're talking about perhaps less skilled practitioners. I think this becomes more obvious for us to see because there are gaps maybe where it might start to seep out, where we can see discomfort just a little bit, where we can see um, the dog maybe opting out for half a second or about to turn away, about to leave the activity. And we can start to ask questions about, well, if this was so fun, if it was so engaging, and why would you want to take that opportunity when that door was open for half a second? Why are you grasping at that opportunity to escape this interaction or to escape this activity? But with very skilled practitioners of this, we we may not see any glimpses of discomfort. And it makes it really hard for us to look at that and go, could anything be going wrong here? when we don't have the opportunity to get that input or feedback. And so I think it's really important to ask those questions, even if we don't have the outward evidence that that could be happening because of some of the documented experiences that have been shared in our human world, one of which in my earliest uh, introduction to the idea that errorless learning could have some adverse effects came from the autism community. And I remember hearing someone speaking about their experiences in um, early childhood with errorless learning, where there it was based on positive reinforcement. The procedure was the same as we expect it to be, very controlled, very small steps. But they were working to extinguish very harmless stimming behaviors that served an intrinsic need for the individual and that were socially unacceptable, which is you know, not, it's very arbitrary. It comes again from that external compliance mindset. And the experience overall was traumatic for the person. They have a lot of social trauma. They were masking a lot of behaviors that were otherwise harmless, weren't bothering anyone. And it brought on a lot of emotional discomfort through the process that did not need to be there. And I have found more and more, it is, it's difficult to find these experiences just out in the scientific literature, but there are certainly accounts from people who have experienced this type of learning in a negative way. 
And I want to take a quick moment to acknowledge the way that I am addressing the autism community, because I know that there are large groups of people that differ on this, that some prefer person-first language, that others believe that person-first language detracts from their identity. And so I am doing the best with what the information I've heard. And if you hear the way that I'm speaking about the autism community and it does not reflect your preference, I do apologize. And I am aware that there is some difference there. So um, we are trying to be very cognizant of those things. But I think as a whole community of dog trainers, these are experiences that as we move toward a trauma-informed model of animal training, it does not just involve our experiences with the animals, but also the humans that can maybe shed some light on strategies that we're catching up on and where they can go wrong. Absolutely. To go back a couple of steps um, where you literally said, you know, in an aerialist stream where we are not letting the dog make mistakes. Um, and I think you also said a compliance mindset. I mean, the, the definition, right, of a compliance mindset would be having full entire control over the situation and expecting compliance. And even if we're doing it in a kind way, we're using something that um, is reinforcing to the dog. And as with skilled trainers, you know, they might not even have the opportunity to feel uncomfortable, but does that rob them of something? Or if they are feeling uncomfortable, are we overriding it with the presence of whatever the appetitive thing is um, in order to get them to do what we want them to do? Um, so I think there's a lot there to dig into. And I think it can be really uncomfortable to think about something that we mean so well with possibly causing discomfort or hiding discomfort. But I do think hopefully with this explanation, people might be able to understand a little bit of where this can be a very compliance-based mindset, um, even when it's offered with the best of intentions. Absolutely. And again, it's not to even vilify a need for compliance. There's certainly times when we have that where we need our dogs to come to us when we call them, we need them to be safe around a busy street. We acknowledge all those things are true, but this is where we want to get away from that black and white thinking of it being an either or. There are other strategies that exist and we need to be looking for them. We need to acknowledge that all of these things can be true in this space. And what do we do with that information and how do we act to rectify that maybe better than we have in the past? Yeah, we really kind of went from that high rates of errors are not necessary and that realization right to the concept of there should never be errors. And there are so many shades of gray in between um, that hopefully we can start to talk about. Definitely. I want to share with you guys just a little personal story. So, and this isn't even ironically the first time when I started to realize that airless learning was sort of problematic, largely because I didn't realize that it was occurring at the time. It's something that I think back to. I was young, I was a preteen, um, riding horses, I was in competition, I was doing a hunter jumper for anybody who knows, three jump over the fences. And I had this tendency in approaching the fence to tilt my head to the right. And it's really important how you hold your body when you're riding a horse. It counts for a lot of uh, the ways that we are judged. And so to deviate from that expected template in any way uh, can knock you know, points off your score. And so it was important to my instructor, who was trying very hard to break it down and get me to hold my head straight, that I learned this. And it did a wonderful job breaking it down. But I remember being so frustrated by that process. And I couldn't articulate why I was young. 
And I later, many years later in life, found out that I have a little bit of vertigo. It didn't really affect me when I was on the horse, but I have some other kind of things that were going on that was making it very difficult for me to accurately judge the distance to the fence. And so I had made a choice in my own brain about how I was going to adjust and adapt the approach so that I could do the thing that was most impactful for me, the getting over the fence, which felt like it had the most risk in the way that felt the most safe. And the execution of the jump was perfect. The approach was not. And so I didn't have the ability to articulate that in that circumstance. And I think if I did, that instructor would have listened. So it's a little bit different in that way. But when we're not offering opportunities for input from our animals, from other learners that we do this with, are we inhibiting things that could allow us to adapt the path to lead to more efficient and effective learning, things that they're going to maintain, that they're not just going to leave that situation and go, okay, well, fuck that. That's not working for me. (laughs) I'm never going to do that again, unless you're there making me do it, or they're compelling me to do it with something good, then I'm not actually taking this in. And is that where we start to get into some of these situations where we have this colloquial phrase we use all the time, dogs don't generalize well. I don't see that. I don't believe that to be true. I think that we don't give them reason to generalize well, or we don't give them knowledge that generalizes well. And so is this one of those areas where we can improve on that to do better, to give them something that generalizes well, to make faster progress, to get to those goals that we're trying to achieve and acknowledge that there may be infinite paths to the goal. You don't have to give up the goal completely just because you're changing the way that you get there because you're allowing some collaboration from your learner as well. Absolutely. And thank you for sharing that story. I think it really illustrates very well how having an extrinsically defined goal can become really problematic if there's something that the learner can't communicate or isn't given the opportunity to communicate. Um, And of course, your safety and your feeling of safety mattered in that moment. And if that was being jeopardized in an ideal world, we'd be able to take that feedback and adjust accordingly um, and possibly find kind of workarounds, as you mentioned, different paths to get to the same goal that serve you as well as, you know, whatever judge is going to be assigning numbers to your performance on the horse. Um, so yeah, thank you for sharing that. I think that's a really good example of how those things can conflict. And sometimes it's so simple, right? The opportunity to get feedback can be something as simple as I'm not comfortable moving in the way you're asking me to. When we're talking about such small defined steps, we might be talking about, for example, uh, teaching an animal to go over an obstacle and we're trying to get them to step onto it with their right leg versus their left leg. And they may just be right or left pod, right? And have a little more confidence stepping with one over the other. And we're just choosing the wrong one. We're just choosing the other side that is less comfortable. And if we offer opportunities for input, how could that change this process to lead to all the benefits that we're trying to achieve? while also acknowledging that there's a very real experience and valuable input that the learner can give us to get to that goal. Absolutely. I think opening the door to more cognitivist influences is so exciting. And there are so many ways to go about doing things, getting to the same goals, especially when we acknowledge that dogs might be capable of more than we typically think. Things like metacognition, generalization, um, absolutely very exciting. And beyond all of that, beyond all those elements of control as well, when we're thinking about comparing the human experience to the animal experience, do we acknowledge enough the impact of our human ability in a learning environment to 
perhaps choose the topic and not in all circumstances. Obviously, we may not get to do that in school, but we may get to do that now in our adult learning. We choose what dog training classes to go to, what content to consume, who the teacher is going to be, when and where it's going to happen. We know and have faith in our ability to leave the experience and to leave it more than just to take a break. We can get in our car and drive away from it. And so it really circles back to agency on multiple levels in how we get to that environment, how we express our needs, how we voluntarily give up control rather than contrasting with that experience of having those elements taken from us or decided for us. What does that do as we come into that experience, despite all the kindness that we're trying to put into that? I feel that it would be a very different baseline (laughs) to come into it with all of those things taken out of our hands, taken out of our control as well. Absolutely. Um, Thinking about if I sign up to take a class of some kind, I have opted in to everything about it, including what my goal is. Um, So I have chosen to take a class to further a skill to achieve a certain, well, goal. Um, And I'm I'm there of my own volition versus a dog that even if we, even if we absolutely believe that that dog is having a blast in that class, they didn't really choose to be there. They didn't really choose to be there that day, that time. They didn't choose to pursue the goal. Um, There are so many ways that our experience of learning is going to be different from a dog's. And I think that concept of, in particular, the difference in choosing the class or choosing the goal and opting into being there also speaks to the choice that we have in determining what's an error for ourselves. So if my goal is to be able to, I don't know, crochet, um, and I start to do like a single chain, one long line, and then I learn how to come around and do the other side, I've established perhaps that my goal is to make a scarf and to make it in a smooth fashion versus somebody who just has been handed some yarn and some crochet needles, crochet hooks, and is like, what do I do with this? Um, so I know going in what my definition of success is, and I don't know that we give dogs the opportunity to understand what the definition of success will be and therefore what an error is, or if we have found a way to involve them in setting the goal and they understand what they're trying to do, how we're treating errors and whether or not we're allowing dogs to experience errors can absolutely impact their ability to reach the goal. Did that make sense? Totally it does. And there are a couple things in there. There are two main things I want to hold on to. The first is that idea that you're you've kind of set a goal for yourself, right? You've you've decided to make this scarf. And so the impact of errors is one that you've you've intrinsically chosen. It's not been forced upon you. And what impact then do errors have? Are errors that come from that, where we kind of self-determine that we have not accomplished something we want to accomplish, we're missing out on a value that's important to us possibly more impactful than errors where we don't really know what's going on. We don't even know that we've really made an error. We're not really sure what we're doing. We're just kind of experimenting to find what has value. Does that have a really emotionally impactful experience that is negative to the learner? And that's not what we see in human learning, that experimentation and the ability to have some flexibility in exploring our options where there isn't risk, where there isn't this leveraging of meaning against us does not have the same effects that we're trying to guard against in this trial and error process. So this idea of trial and error is differentiated from experimentation and discovery, which is a whole different world, whole different language that we utilize for that. The second thing that you brought up, 
but you know, how do we have a goal or bring our learners into understanding what that end goal may be? And I think so many people view this as an obstacle from either moving away from an, a really controlled compliance-based errorless learning model into something more learner-centered is that idea that, well, I can't express to you what the goal is. I have to show you what the goal is. And the only way for me to do that is to guide you as kindly as possible to that goal so that you know what we're doing. And that's where I want to push back because they don't have to know the end goal to still have us make some steps that could change this process a little bit. So if we think about, for example, you know, going into sports, going into a dog training class, even what choices is your dog able to make to express their agency in that circumstance? Are they able to opt out of that activity? Have they practiced that enough that you know that they're fluent enough to do that? Can they do it not only at home, but have they practiced it in this environment? Do they know how to leave this new environment? Do they know how to show you where the door is and guide you to the door and guide you to the car and get you to take them home and have you practice that with them? When I say practice, People get hung up on that. They're like, what, I'm going to go and do that a hundred times with my dog? No, you go three minutes early. You work on your choice-based communication that you've taught at home for 15 minutes. It's really quick. You come in, you show them how to do it. They've got it in their system. They've shown you, they've decided now knowing how to leave. They've affirmed that they want to stay in this room and re-enter the room. Maybe you got back to the car and they said, no, actually, let's go back in that place. And you followed them in. That is a whole different baseline than we're starting with in most of these setups. And so my issue is not only with the airless learning piece of it, but it's how often we are already existing in a compliance mindset that it's so easy to just continue with it and to do it more so in an airless framework. Um, But if we can increase these pieces outside of it and adjacent to it as well, then do we have an empowered animal that even when we're guiding them in very small pieces for a short period of time where we can step back and go, okay, now what are your choices? We've, we've shown you something. Are you going to continue to use it? Is it valuable for you? Then we get some feedback and we continue to build on that plan. We don't take them all the way from the car to the end goal with no opportunities to give feedback in between. So it doesn't have to be this entire throwing out of the process. We do have to install more communication, more ability to check in, more ways to meet needs. Maybe they just want to take a break and get a little water. Can they guide you to that? (laughs) How do they do these things throughout that process? We don't have to make all of them perfect. Can we pick one thing and make it better? Can we pick one thing and make it better? starting from a baseline of we want to do things that are that honor our dogs and what they need and what they want. And let's find ways to ask them what they need and want. So we're not making so many assumptions. And can we go from there? I love it. Absolutely. And even when we're trying to get them to do things that maybe they don't inherently have an interest in, right? We want to explore agility together. And we're not sure yet (laughs) that it's something that our dogs love, but we want to show them acknowledging that we can still in that process acknowledge their sentience, their needs that they may have, their feelings about being introduced to something new and make that process a little easier and figure out what needs they may be able to express at home, like needing to go to the bathroom or needing a break in the car and wanting to play with a toy or what it may be that have now been taken from them. Their ability to communicate those things may be taken in different scenarios as well. And certainly building up whatever might need to be expressed before we play with taking that away. 
Yeah. So I think what you're suggesting is adding sort of to a choice-based communication system, trying to anticipate things that the dog might need or want to ask in different contexts. So they wouldn't necessarily know how to ask to go outside back to the car, for instance, Um, but they might know how to ask to go outside. And so can we start with one, teach them that doing, you know, adding a boop of the nose or whatever to it will lead to the car um, before we're in that scenario. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. So before we start going, I'm going to take all these choices away and start guiding you. There is more of a a piece of consent when we know that we have an empowered animal that is able to express themselves and is able and well-practiced in saying no to us or in guiding us to other things, that when we start to bring in food, when we start to bring in pieces that can start to leverage them and compel them to comply with what we're asking them to do, we hold less power over them, which is uncomfortable space, but it's space that helps balance this a little bit. We hold less power when we know that they're empowered to go, mm, maybe not that right now. I'd actually like this instead, or this is more important. And we've practiced that. So many of the animals that we live with are used to training time and maybe, and outside of that time, they don't know how to ask for the treats that we're offering. They don't have a way to request those things. And so this is their opportunity. Are we building just opportunistic dogs that don't really give us feedback, that don't really act as collaborative partners rather than an empowered animal that can go, ah, eh, don't really like the chicken you're offering. How about you give me the beef that's in your bag? Or if you're not going to give me the beef, I'm going to go sit in the car because I just really would rather not. And then we can get a better gauge of like, what is important? How are we wielding this power over you? And to what end? At what cost am I asking you to do this? Am I asking you to ignore going to the car because you've asked to go to the car and stay in this activity for beef? And knowing that, knowing that we're exerting that power and we're asking for that compromise is very different than coming into it and going, this is very kind. I'm just making you do this and giving you a bunch of treats and all is well, and you're not missing anything. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. Because what if you are missing something? We can't, we can't know unless we're asking them. Yeah. The what if piece. (laughs) Exactly. And that's way beyond an opt out. Um, I certainly have heard a lot of people talk about training and opt-out behavior. We're not just talking about the ability to opt out of the activity though. We're talking about the opportunity to engage with it differently, to wait a little bit, to engage with it for a different reinforcer or, or indeed to opt out altogether, but to opt out altogether, either in the crate in the building or out in the car. So many more options than just, yes, I'll participate or no, I won't. And why they sort of get to have more of a voice in that, in this framework. Yeah. And that it makes us so much more aware of the cost of what we ask for with food, with toys, with other extrinsic rewards. And I think that's where a lot of people get very surprised that I have a lot of cognitive dissonance around the use of extrinsic reinforcement. And I have used it so heavily for a very long time. And it's something that we will have whole other episodes on, but certainly relates to this in when we start to offer opportunities to give us this type of information, like, okay, in this moment, you have my attention dog. What would you like to do with that attention? And they say, hey, let's go walk over here. And you say, actually, I'm really trying to get you to get in the car. We become so much more aware of where we don't align, where there's conflict in our relationships, where there's conflict in our values and our motivations and how we just override those things by going, okay, but I'll give you food for it and not really acknowledging what other outcomes exist that we could harness and utilize and give access to through ourselves 
um, that can build really potent behaviors. We can still utilize that as reinforcement, certainly. But in that just awareness, it's it's so hard not to think of the lives of animals as inherently very frustrating, <laughs> inherently very anxiety inducing when we think of all of the conflict that exists and just not being able to express simple preferences in your day-to-day interactions and experiences. And so to add that to any compliance-based protocol, even if we decide to stick with the compliance, that's okay, as long as we're more aware of what we're asking when we do that and the impact when we do that. Absolutely. Yeah. I think I might've spoken about this in one of the previous episodes, but the awareness of of what I'm doing when I ask Chloe to do something for food, my awareness of that has just really increased. And to your point, it doesn't mean that I never use food to get her to do something, but it means I know what I'm doing when I do it. Um, And I think in addition to taking away the opportunity for dogs to have exert simple preferences or communicate simple preferences, we're sometimes missing an opportunity for them to have needs met in a very functional way. So if we look at the idea of a functional reinforcer and a situation that has the opportunity to use a a functional reinforcer and we introduce food, we have a competing contingency, right? Mm -hmm. It brings me to an example of airlessness that I see very often. And it so much of my work in choice-based communication came to be because of reactivity. Reactive dogs are my heart and souls, where I really got pulled into the dog industry from the horse industry. But one of the skills that very often is tried by most reactive dog owners is to teach their dog either loose leash walking or some kind of variation on a heel behavior, how formal that may be is up to them. And in doing so, it's often recommended that we use a high rate of reinforcement or reinforcing where they are. But in that, in the world of a reactive dog that has cost more sometimes than others, as with anything. And so when we have a dog that's working for treats, maybe they're focused on the treats and they're trying to get the treats, but the cost of that is movement. Now, all of a sudden we introduce a trigger in the distance and we want the treat. We don't have alternatives that we've been taught that we can exercise to still get access to the treat. There's one contingency that we're looking for, one criteria, because we're trying to keep it simple, right? We've got the best intentions. And so the dog takes a step and they get the treat. And in their head, are they working out the cost benefit analysis of moving closer to that trigger? Or are they so distracted by the treat that all of a sudden they look, they didn't process that a trigger was there, and now they're exploding because the movement was not chosen, the movement was not intentional, it was a side effect. There are a number of different ways that I've seen this backfire, even though the goal itself was met, the dog is walking on a loose leash, all is going well, but this compliance mindset doesn't acknowledge some needs that they may have in different scenarios. And it certainly doesn't under a certain emotional threshold present itself. And that's a piece that I really worry about. It's not just that we have these competing motivators because at a certain point that will become clear at a certain point, the dog is not going to choose the food anymore and they're going to choose some other behavior. And that's where we see a lot of people say, my dog doesn't respond to food. I can't manage them with food. Okay. Our values are off. (laughs) They're competing. Something isn't working here. The other piece of that is that when the value that they want is overridden by the food. So that that piece under that 
dial, the whatever it is that's measuring the amount to that threshold of emotionality where the, the it tips the scales towards food is no longer valuable and I'm going to take it. I'm going to focus on the thing I need to focus on. That piece in between is the piece where a lot is missing, where we don't know that there's conflict, where we don't know that there is a cost benefit analysis going on. And so we need to be able to separate those things to be able to ask the dog, do you want to move toward this thing? Or do you want to treat is not the same thing (laughs) by any means. And when we're doing that, when we teach behavior that also creates room for expression. And so in our choice-based communication, specifically for reactive dogs, we utilize things like uh, specific behaviors that the dog uses, not only to initiate your movement as the human, but to keep you moving as the human and when to ask you to stop moving or change directions. And these are all very intentional signals that the dogs give. We can get that goal of loose leash walking. We get a lot less pulling unleashed. And sometimes we get beautiful engaged healing behaviors. You'd be amazed what some of these dogs offer because it works for them. It's not because they're working for food, but it's because we've aligned what they need and what we need towards mutually beneficial goals. And that is a resource we do not harness enough. And we are not aware enough of the conflicts, I think, that we introduce. But that gets us into learning models might bring into this. And so, you know, how do we teach those things? Well, we don't teach them in the environment where the problem is impactful, where there is risk to exploring your options. We don't teach it in the environment where the problem needs to be solved, where there is a problem to solve. And I think that is somewhat aligned with airless learning, but also airless learning exists to develop the context and everything all around the dogs so that they're successful in it. Instead, we want to introduce you to your options without the options carrying a weight with them. You're free to choose it or not. You choose this if this is important. You choose this option if this other thing is important. And when there's an absence of a particular choice, that becomes communication for us, which is very, very different yet still goal-based. We still get the ultimate overarching goal that we want of a dog not reacting, of a dog walking on a loose leash, of a dog engaging with us, of a dog that listens to us, that we can intervene when we need to, that does comply when we need them to, and often does so with less effort than we did before. But we build that in a very different process (laughs) to get there. And so it is certainly possible But we have to get creative and looking at all of these issues and kind of finding our ways around that in order to get to that point. There was a lot in there. Um, And you say that I know you're not just talking to me, but that I might be surprised by the behaviors that come out of this type of system around loose leash walking and healing. I am not surprised, Sarah, because I've seen them in my own dog Um, in the very sort of early clumsy attempts that I made to teach her an errorless heel um, that really were just sort of putting food down into her face and moving forward, um, which turned out was kind of stressing her out. It didn't take into account the way that she would like to be led, whether or not she wanted to be led, whether or not she wanted to be that close to me, et cetera. Um, So, so many things were missed there based on my somewhat arbitrary goal of having her get into a heel. Um, You know, I don't, as a kind of a, just an owner, not competing in anything. I don't really need her to be in a heel per se. Loose leash walking would be a better goal, but actually now that she knows that staying next to me gives her control on the walk, uh, she is more or less in a heel a lot of the time. Um, and so look at that. It happened on her terms in a way that serves her. And ultimately the behavior that now serves her also serves my goal. So we got there mutually. 
Um, the other thing you said that I wanted to highlight was about offering the dog options without giving them weight, which I think takes us into the values that we culturally have around right and wrong and errors and our kind of feelings about errors. Um, and I would really like to push back in general on the assumption that I think we all have at various times that errors are bad, that errors are not things that we learn from. And in particular, that errors are things that dogs can't learn from. If we kind of set it up in a way that they have the opportunity to do that, I think they can learn. Um, so I wanted to chat a little bit about that because I really, in humans and in my work, I really have an issue with the idea that quote unquote errors are bad rather than they're just learning opportunities. And there are things that we can talk through and and people can grow from them. And I have to believe that the same can be true in dogs based on what we know in the studies that we've reviewed about this information, because again, behavior science universal. And so some of the things that have been concretely established now in humans I believe also apply to dogs around the concept of whether or not errors can contribute to learning. And I think that there has been an assumption that they can't and that we want to protect dogs from errors, which isn't necessarily accurate. Absolutely. And even, I I know this makes people uncomfortable, but even if it turns out that we, you know, we can't do this with dogs, we won't know until we try. And so this idea of, we don't know yet, who's going to do it? if not us, really, we're just kind of waiting for it to fall in our laps. We need to be kind of out here recognizing the problems and going, okay, well, how are we going to change these things? How can we look to other areas of knowledge that might be applicable to formulate some strategies or try some things out and experiment with it? Um, As long as we're not hurting anyone and hurting the dogs or doing more harm than we think we're currently experiencing in these procedures, then why not? There's so much in the research that I think really brings us back to the what is an air piece and where it is valuable and circling back to what is learning and what are our goals of learning and what is, what's the process? Because there, I think there is a very important distinction in a few different pieces of learning. There is the just being able to do some sort of motor task piece. There is a cognitive element of having the skills to kind of be aware of how you've reached an answer and then in similar but not precisely exact circumstances reach the same conclusions again that's that generalization piece that i think that we don't harness nearly enough um and then there are also processes of learning where we're learning about the ways that we interact with information what pieces of information are valuable and relevant to us but what is applicable to the world around us as well. And giving irrelevant information does not lead to learning or retention by any means. So we have to, in some ways, balance that all of these different needs in the learning process. It's not as simple as I have this goal for this movement for you, dog. If we are not also acknowledging how this is going to matter to them, it's going to fall apart as long as we are not there to carry it every step of the way to maintain it. And that's where we see behaviors go into spontaneous recovery, old behaviors come back or behaviors that we've taught just that disintegrate very quickly under different circumstances. And so there's so much in learning to be aware of. But beyond that, I think many people are going to be incredibly surprised to learn that Errors in learning, the idea of getting things wrong and correct, not finding the right answer, especially when we're talking about knowledge-based skills like math, uh, word retention, other things like that, actually increases memory and increases 
the correct scoring that when we engage with our errors and when we are responded to in very specific ways with our errors, it's not that we're punishing errors. That's a big piece that errors, we don't need that. You don't need to know that you're wrong and have that wrongness be weighted by some sort of like moral or impactful aversive that you're trying to avoid. None of that is relevant or needed in the learning process at all. What is important is how we utilize that structure to understand the correct information, to understand how to reach it more efficiently the next time. And there's so much in a body of knowledge around that. And this is, I'm sure, I see not even have so much to talk about with this bit. So let's get into the research a little bit. Do it. Um, I think actually a really fascinating place to start that I learned as almost like a like a side effect of diving into this stuff is that the sort of origination of all of this, the study that kind of it seems from what I can tell started all of this discussion of errorless learning came from Terrace in 1963 and had to do with some work that he was doing with pigeons. And the idea there was really he was looking at the role of inhibition and learning. He was not attempting to develop an entire teaching method or learning method. And yet here we are. (laughs) Um, And I think that's so interesting that we have landed on something that is largely accepted as kind of best practice that was never intended for that in the first place. Um, And then since then, research has certainly been done on the role of errors in learning. Um, And as you mentioned, it's been linked to enhanced correct performance, memory retrieval, Um, that have been replicated multiple times in humans. So knowing all of that, we have to kind of ask ourselves, is, is this really the the best approach that we can be taking? Even if we're, even if we are in fact worried about the animal's performance in some way, and we do have a concrete goal, is errorless learning still the best way to get there? Absolutely. And even in the research, there's two things. The first is we are concerned with their emotional experience. And I can see many pros feeling like airlessness, especially when we're talking about anxious dogs or dogs with behavioral problems is certainly the way that we're going to lean towards because we want to give them confidence. We want to empower them. When we're talking about removing agency, are we still talking about empowerment? Second of all, there is some research that actually does tie back to animal studies that looks at uh, fear-based learning and the impact of errors on that, which is actually that they are beneficial. And I know that seems super weird, but we'll talk a little bit about why that is. Um, And again, we don't have to take all of this and throw airlessness out, but it's what can we do to align more with what we're seeing in these things um, and really reap those benefits and really reach for the empowerment that we want to be reaching for in this? Are we meeting what we're setting out to meet? So it there is a lot of nuance here <laughs> for sure. The other piece of that. Terrace and the pigeons are definitely touted as the place where airlessness started, but it was also perpetuated quite a bit from B.F. Skinner, who believed that errors are not necessary for learning, started as early as as the 1930s. Um, And I think even recently in the 1980s, uh, there was a piece on the the lack of necessity of errors in learning. But we also have to remember that when we're talking about operant conditioning and the ways that that was being used is really in kind of discrimination, learning between two options. And again, in behaviorism, we're not looking at 
cognitive aspects. We're not looking at the emotional impact of those things. We're really looking at the inputs and the outputs. Are we getting the correct response at the rate that we want? And we have since compared that more recently and shown that there really isn't a difference between airlessness and trial and error learning, as well as these other, um, that leads to a different rate of responding in terms of correct responses. We get actually more of them when we are engaging with errors in a more constructive way. Um, and so despite that being a long held belief and we need to look at kind of newer, ideas around that and the ways that we've been looking at it to continuously look back and reaffirm that we're making the choices that we want to be making as we go. Absolutely. And I love where you started with what even is learning because I had this huge moment about where, okay, so we started with Skinner's thoughts and in throughout his writing, he he, he has different places where he talks about errorlessness and that errors are not necessary for learning. Where I went with that was, well, okay, how are we defining learning? When it looked up that definition, knowledge or skill acquired by instruction or study, modification of a behavioral tendency by experience, such as exposure to conditioning. Okay, so if Skinner is looking at errors being unnecessary to change behavior, and that's how we're sort of defining learning behavior, have we explored a more robust, more cognitive definition of learning in this? And so are we shortchanging them and what they're capable of and with their ability to generalize, like we touched on, if we are just looking at the behavior of the dog in that situation, or can we adopt a broader definition of what learning could mean there? And there's research around what's called daring or deliberate erring uh, coming from Wong and Lim that I am admittedly making a little bit of a... um, a connection here that may or may not exist, but in my mind. So if we're demonstrating in the research that giving someone an opportunity to have intentional errors followed by discussion or correction in, in the nicest sense in terms of that discussion, correcting a previously held belief, that promotes generalization. So if we have a dog that's learning out of context, which could be demonstrating an intentional error, they choose this door. It's just not really considered as an error. It's just kind of an alternative and information, but they're having the opportunity to practice, get it quote unquote wrong to learn what happens. And that we know then from this research in humans that that promotes generalization. So this takes us all the way back to the point about if we open more doors, are dogs more competent than we think that they are? And I think the answer might be yes. Absolutely. Kind of circles back to what you said of how we handle the corrections piece, because we've got such connotation with that in dog training. And that's not at all what we mean in learning space. And in the space of errorlessness, when we're talking about taking a potential error, potential wrong answer, and how we move that into the right answer space, that's what we're talking about. And so there's an example of it um, that they give that was taken from Learning from Errors by Janet Metcalf um, that talks about a specific study. And so the quote is this. Stevenson and Stigler and their colleagues conducted a landmark study in which they were able to videotape lessons in grade eight mathematics classrooms in a variety of countries, including the United States, Taiwan, China, and Japan. Of most interest, given that Japan is by far outstripping the United States in math scores, is the striking difference in the teaching methods used in those two countries. Although there may be many other reasons for the differences in math scores, one highly salient difference is whether or not teachers engage with students' errors. As Stevenson and Stigler pointed out, Praise curtails discussion and serves mainly to reinforce the teacher's role as the authority who bestows rewards. It does not empower students to think, 
criticize, reconsider, evaluate, and explore their own thought processes. By way of contrast, in Japan, praise is rarely given. There, the norm is extended discussion of errors, including the reasons for them, and the ways in which they may seem plausible but nevertheless lead to the incorrect answer, as well as discussion of the route and the reasons to the correct answer. Such in-depth discussion of the thought processes underlying both actual and potential errors encourage exploratory approaches by students. And that brings us really far (laughs) into what we're talking about. But I want to, before anyone's thinking it in their head and shuts this down for your own minds, okay, if you're thinking to yourself, well, we don't know about dogs' metacognitive abilities. Yeah, I agree with you. However, we do know, and there's a very recent study that actually redid some of the methods on uh, metacognition in dogs. There, Okay, so in 2022, the study had looked back at some of the previous attempts to analyze if dogs are aware of when they don't have enough information to solve a problem. And there have been a number of studies that have looked at this and were sort of inconclusive. And this particular study changed the methods for which they found um, the actual ability for dogs to seem to indicate this, to seem to indicate when they don't have enough information to solve the problem by seeking more information. And so that is one of the markers of metacognition and metacognition in its very simplest form is thinking about our thinking, the ability to be aware of our thinking and thought processes. What's particularly interesting in this paper that I just read um, that quote from learning from errors, it goes on to discuss a number of different studies that uh, noted the benefit of engaging with errors in this sort of constructive way But it also found in one study that controlled for many variables in a very careful way that the participants were not metacognitively aware of what those impacts sort of were. And so it doesn't seem to, although we're talking about exploring these thought processes um, and maybe going through some freedom to do that or discussion about it, which we may not be able to do the discussion piece with dogs or with other animals that we work with does not seem to be a prerequisite to being able to still facilitate more constructive thinking processes. And I know that feels weird. (laughs) And how do we even begin to do that? That's where we're starting to explore choice, input, agency. These things are all clearly pathways and underpinnings of education in humans. How do we start to make it look more like that in our animal training to reap those same benefits? There's so much to the concept of metacognition in dogs, and I know we'll come back to it another time, but even if we just look at metacognition as the ability to take in information and adjust our thinking about a particular thing. So we are looking at what we thought would happen, we reflect on what did happen, and we change our behavior accordingly. I would hope most of us can agree that dogs can do that. It's sort of the foundation of, I go to the cabinet for food, or once the food moves, I go to where the food is now, or something doesn't result in the reinforcement that I expected in my behavior changes on a very simple level. I think we see that in dogs a lot. So yeah, I I think whether or not metacognition matters here, I I do think there are at least very simple elements of metacognition that most people might agree that dogs have um, at the simplest level. Again, the other thing I want to go all the way back to the quote that you read And the idea that praise curtails discussion and serves mainly to reinforce the teacher's role as the authority who bestows rewards. Because we have been talking about this idea that the teacher, we the human, the teacher, 
establish what the goal is and then reinforce the dog's progress toward the goal without their input. And that, that sentence really drives that point home. And I think it's so nicely stated. I just had to go back to it. Yeah. And it really emphasizes that even in the face of kindness, we're trying to praise, we're trying to emphasize the good things that we aren't freeing ourselves from that dichotomy of right and wrong still, because there's still an awareness from the learner in the absence of praise that there is some contrast there. And so it takes us to that colloquial definition of errorlessness, right? That we're just ignoring the errors. We're not acknowledging those ones. And that's exactly what this was intending to study was that effect in U.S. classrooms, which is a pretty predominant idea. Um, And they looked, especially when we're talking about mathematics and uh, they're writing a problem on the board, the student gives the wrong answer. The teacher just doesn't quite acknowledge it or they kind of brush it off and they give praise to the correct answer delivered. The student who didn't produce the right answer is still aware of the fact that they did not produce the right answer. It doesn't, it doesn't buffer against that in the way that I think we feel that it does. And there are certainly so many nuances to that. We talked about defining goals for yourself, what the social impact of that is. And so how can we look at what these impacts are, not just the strategy itself or the the intentions we have, but truly what the impacts could be and try to address those more individually than with something that feels good or feels reinforcing to us, because I think giving praise feels very reinforcing to us. But when we think about how that was phrased, that it reinforces their ability to bestow those rewards, it's like, oh, damn, (laughs) that's not how I thought about that at all. (laughs) And acknowledge that can be true. There are two sides to it. There are two sides. And just like this highlights the dichotomy between right and wrong, I think it also highlights what can be a false dichotomy between teacher and learner. And again, bear with me, people, but I think that there are times that our dogs can be more involved in this conversation, if you will, that they can have more agency, more input. And it does not just have to be us teaching them how to do a thing. It can be more conversational and fluid than that. So I think that this framework can be limiting in a few different ways. Um, The dichotomy between right and wrong is one. And the dichotomy between teacher and learner is another. We can take turns in those roles, speaking, listening, teaching, receiving. Absolutely. And I think any of us thinking back will think to a teacher that we really liked and they were a teacher that personalized to us or that really interacted with us in a way that wasn't just holding their teaching authority and knowledge over us or assessing us. That doesn't feel good. (laughs) It doesn't feel in the same way as when we're learning alongside our peers and the bonding that goes through that. And I think when we embody that, it feels very different. It also brings me to um, this idea that we have of, we, we have to, we have to guide them to the right answer. We have to lead them to be safe. We greatly underestimate dogs. And it, it, I understand how hard it is to give up control and believe that they can still exist in the framework and toward the goals that we want them to exist toward. But it happens all the time. I see it all the time. Dogs are far more aware of things than we think that they are. We may be trying to take them on a walk around the block and we're going, sure, just let me show you. We're going to get to that park eventually. You're just not remembering that. You're you're not wanting to go there because you don't remember it's you know out of view. They know. They know exactly where it is. And if they have the choice and they want to go there, they will guide you there every single day. And if they don't want to go there, they'll guide you in a new direction that you've never even considered. So we need to start recognizing not just the capacity of our dogs to contribute to education and their own education, but their capacity to have thoughts and opinions. 
and that we we don't know enough about them. I think we we think we do. We hope we do. And if we're asked about things, what is your dog like? We can say certain treats that they like, certain activities that they like. But what would they tell us that we haven't opened the door to? Is that only what they like of the experiences they've been gifted? And that's a hard thought that gives that keeps me up at night. <laughs> yeah, um, it's a good one. A uh, good one to ruminate on a lot. I, so I think what you're saying is we should assume confidence in dogs to like put that in a nutshell and a phrase that we use a lot. We should give them more credit and assume that they're confident. The other thing there. So when you say, we think we know what they like, I think you're right across groups of people that we think we know what they like. But I also think about the difference in the ability of a professional to know what a dog likes or to believe they know what a dog likes versus a novice owner who's just entering this conversation and their ability to accurately discern what their dog likes or doesn't like and how much smoother that process could be in getting the pair to work well together. If the dog could just communicate their needs instead of the human having to learn umpteen million different things about dog body language, what X, Y, Z means, what dogs in general need that we don't typically think about as kind of novice owners, things like sniff time, decompression time that anyone who has been in this conversation a minute knows about, but just walking in the door, you have no idea. So the amount of catch up that we as new owners have to do to get to knowing what any dog likes, what all dogs arguably universally like versus my particular dog, that takes so much more time than if we can just ask them and trust their answers. Yes. I love that you brought that up and brought it back to time because I think that's something that is a value shared by a lot of dog owners of we're feeling overwhelmed and this is, or we've poured lots of money into this, lots of time and effort, and we just want to understand. We just want an answer. We want to be able to use our resources most efficiently to get to what we'd like to achieve or to feel like we're getting progress towards that. And so often I think we're comfortable as dog trainers, as dog pros with it's going to take time. It may never happen. And all of those things. And yeah, I agree. I agree. These are setting realistic expectations are very real and important, but I'm also personally not satisfied with that. I don't like delivering that news. So I am on a personal mission to figure out what could work faster. What could work better? How can we be more efficient? And are there ways in which we're stepping on our own toes and doing that? Because those things are not separate. Our goals, not everyone's goal is just to be kind, to give our dogs agency. We want to circle back to how these things increase the effects of other things that are valuable to us as well. And why that might be beneficial for somebody to add to their behavior mod plan. Why learning to listen to your dog who's trying to bite people can actually make them bite people less and more quickly. <laughs> and that sounds crazy um, when you're, you're in the thick of it. But the more we can start to understand those things and to really get fluent in them and be able to explore them and convey them easily to dog owners and have dog owners even understand them for themselves where you don't need us to stay safe, to keep people safe around you. That's the goal. We want everyone to be empowered, not only the dog. I do want to circle back to some of the literature because I think there's some really important pieces that we did touch on that go back to, this is not just about those motor skills, those discrete skills, but also that emotional regulation piece, which is a 
big piece of learning for so much of us and what we want from our dogs to be able to be calmer, more deliberate, to make good choices. We talk about that all of the time. And so what does that mean? If I'm not showing you what the good choices are, how do we get you to those or how do we facilitate your ability to get to those more effectively? And what the literature is consistently showing, and we will cite it for you guys, especially this, um, paper that I read the quote from earlier, Learning from Errors by Janet Metcalf, is a really good review on a lot of the existing literature out there. And so it cites and reviews a lot of these studies and how they fit into these larger pieces of examining the role of errors in learning. Actually showed a greater propensity to produce the correct answer in the future when learners had produced errors and had those errors engaged with. I'll give you a couple examples of those, but also this idea of that freedom to experiment a little bit, which I think is a very different thing from trial and error. And there is some reference to it around being aware that you might not be right. And I I think we can all relate to that where there's times where we go, oh, this might not work, but I'm going to play with it. And we're aware we're playing with it. And do we acknowledge enough animals capability to be in that same sort of mindset and to open the door to that. So early studies by, I want to say Izawa, and I I hope I'm not butchering that, uh, in 1967 and 1970 showed that multiple unsuccessful retrieval attempts led to better memory for the correct feedback than did a procedure producing fewer incorrect responses. Kane and Anderson, 1978, showed similar results, attempting the generation of the last word of the sentence, even if what was generated was wrong, led to enhanced correct performance compared to reading the sentence correctly from the outset. So that definitely seems to relate to our idea in dog training of only practicing that correct response um, rather than being handed the correct answer as well, just kind of uh, repeatedly reading the correct thing actually didn't lead to better retrieval, ironically. There's more recent research that just came to the same conclusion, just pointing that out, that um, some of this is a little bit older, but there's also stuff from the last, um, definitely within the last decade that has had the same um, outcome. Yeah, they they show so many uh, different ones in here. So I'm just kind of handpicking a couple and some of them just to show how far back this has gone, that this is not an exploration that is recent, but that it has been replicated many times since. And I think that is definitely a concern when we're looking at some of these studies, that if it's too new and it hasn't had the opportunity to be replicated, is it unreliable? So there is a balance, certainly, of there is some older stuff, but also that the newer stuff is reaffirming it for us right now. Um, this next one, I, I really hope that I'm saying it right, but I may be absolutely off on this. Um, Slameka and Favreski, 1983, asked people to remember near antonyms but even failed attempts followed by feedback containing the correct answer improved later recall of the correct answers over simply reading the correct answer. Cornell et al. in 2015 has conducted a recent investigation of the same issue and reached similar conclusions. And looking again at that um, at Cornell et al. a little bit earlier in 2009, they were the ones who conducted the first definitive study that directly compared the effect of producing versus not producing a commission error. The Q and the to-be-remembered target word in most of the experiments in their study were slightly related word pairs. They compared a condition in which the answer or target was simply given to participants with no intervening error generation, the no error condition, to one in which the participants were asked to guess the answer first and nearly always produced an error before being given the correct answer to the study. 
Fermat was carefully controlled to ensure that the amount of time studying the correct answer was equated across conditions. Cornell et al. 2009 also eliminated from consideration any instances in which the person did not generate an error in the error generation condition. This happened less than 10% of the time, and the surprising finding, which now has been replicated many times, was that on the final test, participants remembered the correct answers considerably better when they had generated an error than when they had not. It appears then that error generation is not inevitably bad and to be avoided at all costs, and indeed, it appears to foster learning. But this was the study in which they said, interestingly, in the related pair case in which a large beneficial effect of committing errors was found, the participants were metacognitively unaware of the benefit. And so even though they were performing these errors, maybe there is an experience even of being the learner in that position. And maybe there is a an awareness of producing the wrong answer. And there might be feelings around that. But then we have a cost-benefit problem as well of if that, even with that emotional experience of knowing, oh, darn, I got the wrong answer and I don't feel good about that. Maybe there's um, an experience of shame or disappointment or whatever it may be still leads to better learning outcomes. Then we have quite a bit to weigh there. And again, this is all in the absence of any punishment of those errors. They were not told they were wrong and gone, oh, you're bad, anything like that. It was simply, that's incorrect. Here's the correct answer. And that led to much better outcomes than even not performing that answer at all, which is really interesting when we are talking about the goals behind errorless learning and what we're trying to achieve in that. I think it really contradicts all of that. And even what I believed for a long time to be the goals of errorless learning. Absolutely. And I think that piece there where you mentioned the idea of that people are maybe giving wrong answers and with or without an experience of shame, that impact. I think that experience of shame around wrong answers might be something that we as humans and many of us American humans in particular are projecting onto our dogs. Um, Errors are not inherently shameful, right? And so another thing that this excellent paper, there's so much in here, um, talks about is in different cultures, different approaches that teachers have to errors. And when it is just a part of your everyday practice to start with a question, explore the question, have wrong answers, and then talk about why they were wrong, there isn't shame attached. There doesn't have to be a negative connotation to making a mistake. And I think that's some of what feels good about errorless learning that can carry into this conversation is that even if we do have a concrete goal that we are working toward, and even if there are things that we perceive as leading us away from that goal, it doesn't have to be a shameful or bad experience. Um, so I think that's a piece that we can kind of keep that that does feel really good about all of this. Um, the other thing I wanted to pull out is that the um, the Kang et al. study found no effect, um, no difference when participants had absolutely no idea what the answers to factual questions might be, but they were nevertheless forced to guess. And so they summarize, it appears that to be beneficial, the guess needs to be someone informed rather than a shot in the dark. So rather than having a dog just sort of like figure it out on their own, some guidance would be beneficial, but having pieces where they are trying and quote unquote failing can be really beneficial as long as they understand sort of the full context within which they're operating. Yeah. And there's so much to pull from within that. There's there's one sentence along those lines that really sticks out to me. And it says, when feedback is elaborative or scaffolded, its beneficial effects are also increased. And that came from Finn and Metcalf in 2010. And scaffolding is something that we don't talk about a lot in dog training. I don't think it's a word that's thrown around a lot, but there are so many different techniques in scaffolding. Um, and it certainly comes from a learner-centered framework of how are we supporting the learners without 
directly leading the learners um, and allowing them to still kind of explore their freedoms, but in a way that is still kind of guiding, but without restricting completely. And that is a little bit of an art form in the science of learning that I think we can really pull from and benefit from. I also love that you brought in the cultural implications of that and potentially feeling shame around having the wrong answers. And perhaps how we're, we might be anthropomorphizing our dogs and our other animals that we work with um, in a way that isn't helpful to them. And there is certainly a balance of when are we pulling from experiences that could be possible that they could be having and when are we not? And we may never know concretely which one is more accurate, but we certainly want to explore these possibilities and hold space for any possibility to be true um, until we're sort of proven otherwise. And I think that that's certainly a really good way to circle back to that. I want to be clear with the scaffolding concept. I think um, what scaffolding sort of associates with in the dog world in my brain, just on a gut reaction is shaping. And that's not exactly what we're talking about. Um, And they're different. So I think somebody could hear, oh, well, if we're giving the dog some support, but not fully guiding the way, are we sort of having them figure this out and make errors via shaping? Um, And they're still not quite aligned. Um, So with shaping, we would still have a very concrete goal that we're working toward. Um, The dog may or may not be bought into it. It may or may not be functional for the dog. And we are still, I think, I think people differ on this to my understanding, but we're still maybe generally not rewarding quote unquote errors. So there's still a lot of things in that framework that don't quite apply here. And that I would say are different than scaffolding. Do you have anything you want to add to that though? Yeah, I think with shaping, there's so many ways in which it's differently understood. There's free shaping, there's um, more of a guided shaping where we're adding an element of errorlessness, right? Where we're kind of controlling what the next self-generated option is going to be a little bit. So it's a little less, I'm pulling this from you, dog, and a, a little bit more I've created one door for you to walk through and you get to choose when you walk through it. Um metaphorically. So I think, yeah, there's, there's a lot more nuance to it than shaping. I think shaping is as close as we get to scaffolding in our current framework. Um, but scaffolding, that should be a whole episode that we do. Honestly, it could be a webinar on ways that we can, um, apply scaffolding strategies to our work with dogs. Cause there are some really interesting ways that we do that. I talk a lot about modeling as an option. We don't often talk about observational learning and it and exploration and their ability in dogs. Um, there are so many different ways. Really goes back to uh, Vygotsky's zone of proximal development is one of the guiding pieces behind what scaffolding is and sort of how it works. And there are three phases of identifying where a learner is in that process and just how much to be supporting them with that scaffolding. When we think about scaffolding, it is what we use in construction, and that's why it comes from constructivism, um, that it holds up the wall as we're building it. So as the building is not able to support itself, the scaffolding is there to hold it up, and then it is removed piece by piece as the building is able to stand on its own. Same thing with the zone of proximal development. It gives us three phases, one where the learner has no ability to do the skill by themselves. We're scaffolding a lot there. And we've got a lot of different strategies that we can do for that, but we are still trying to give them enough space to be doing it themselves or the illusion of doing it themselves, whatever that may feel like. 
And then we're backing off as they start to show some competency, some ability and skill to take over and gain independence. And we want to really foster that. So we're really kind of peeling ourselves back until the end goal of having an independent, self-sustaining, highly generalized learned skill that the learner can take on into the world and be successful. And that's very different, I think, than shaping towards our own end goals. It's much broader and open-ended and is definitely meant to serve the learner in that purpose. Yes, definitely. Um, And we definitely have to do a whole thing, a whole episode on this because there's a directly parallel concept in, um, in education called the learning partnerships model. And I think, I think it would be interesting to compare and contrast. And I also think about applying this framework, not just for the dog, but for the owner. So if a trainer or dog professional is working with a human, how are we applying these concepts to them? Um, So yeah, well, we'll circle back to all of it. (laughs) Yeah. And it, it, I reference it without saying those sort of things when I talk about how I want to no longer be needed by you as a dog owner. Not that I don't want to continue to talk to you, you dog owners, and I'm speaking generally to anyone who's ever worked with me. You are all lovely and I love talking to you, but I don't want you to have to need me forever. I want you to feel very quickly like, oh, wait, I I can do this a little bit without you, or I I solved a problem this week and I wasn't worried that I was going to break something with it. And I could bring you the solution and I could tell you how amazing that was and become your cheerleader. And that's where I really want to be with it. So I'll support you as much as you need, but also our goal is to let you thrive in the world, not create a system where you're constantly feeling that you are stuck to us. You have to keep coming back to us because we're the only ones who can fix your dog or your dog only listens to us. We can get into all of that, certainly. (laughs) That applies with errorlessness too, though, specifically where um, I've heard people primarily on, on social media, but talking about errorless learning for the human with dogs and I will tell you that I have some frustration around that as, as an owner, just as a human. Um, I really find that for me to grasp even a skill. So forget concepts, but to grasp a skill, I kind of, I really benefit from knowing where I'm headed and not just having it sliced down for me, but I need to be able to have the entire picture and then bring it back down to the, you know, from the forest down to the trees. That helps me a lot. And I don't know in my experience that errorlessness has let that happen. So there are a lot of implications for this with dogs. I think there are implications for this for how we think about working with people. Um, yeah, it's all, it's all, all related to everything. Sorry. <laughs> It is, but I, I actually love that we went on that tangent. I think we should explore it a little bit. The idea of errorlessness in humans, because I know that there are trainers who have very strong feelings about treating people errorlessly because of the same values that we're ascribing to it, right? That it's kind, that we're going to lead to less frustration. We're setting you up for success. We're trying to give you the experience that you want. And in doing so, if we start to, again, not personalize to our human clients as well, are they experiencing then those same frustrations? So I think it's really interesting that you shared your your need in that of, I want to know what that end picture is, which is probably not something that would be given to you in that framework. We're trying to just give you the little instruction that you need to do next, the next thing to handle, not the big end piece that you need to worry about. And so how does that, even though it is met with kindness, even though our intention is to make it easier for you, it's not matching up with the impact of that. And when we can acknowledge that that possibility exists, we don't talk about it. We don't know that it exists until we're more aware of it. When we develop that awareness, we can then ask you and we can going back to those earlier ideas of if, if we want to support you in the best way, and maybe airless is the option. Where does it fit? Where does it not? But how can I give you informed consent into it? 
And we, that's so much easier with humans than it is with animals to give informed consent on that process and go, how much do you want to be driven in this process? How much can I guide you? What do you need? And that's a very different experience. And I think that those who can come into it with informed consent can enjoy it. Um, that those who know where the, what the end goal is that can say, actually, I don't like this step. Let's change it that have input. Those are the pieces that I find missing or potentially missing in the interactions with animals. So I think it is still really important to explore that, that other side of this. And yeah, you're right. We, we've totally kind of skipped that in this discussion and it total it really is important to it. Yeah. So I might arrive at a trainer's doorstep with an implied level of consent and that I have chosen to be there. I have chosen that trainer. I want to work with them, but I also don't arrive as a black blank slate. There are things that I am bringing into that experience that I know just generally in the world as a human who has expertise in some areas and about my dog. And so the concept of sort of saying, I trainer, I dog professional, I know how to fix this. And I am going to walk you through it step-by-step in such a way that you never make a mistake. I personally don't actually feel that that contributes to my learning. It may or may not contribute to a particular skill. Like if we're talking about the mechanics of treat delivery, maybe maybe that's more useful. Um, but if we're talking about a larger concept like emotional change or how to do counter conditioning, that's something that I am really going to need the whole picture to benefit from, particularly in this specific example with counter conditioning as somebody with a background in education. I am going to want to understand the entire concept before we dive into the specifics of what each little looks like. Um, and so I think there, there are some things there about valuing owners as knowers and not just arriving as a blank slate, even though we might know nothing about dog training. We have other experiences that can inform what we're learning and how we're learning about dog training. It also doesn't leave a lot of room for things like neurodivergence. And so if we're going to teach you errorlessly, we have decided the path we've decided that I'm never going to let you know that you make an error, but what if there's something contributing to that error that you don't know about? about me that I could actually then inform your method. There's so much there. Yeah. Or are we backing you into a corner of having to justify a need that you have to, to like express it to a certain extent that we take it seriously instead of soliciting just a small amount of input from the beginning to kind of work our way through a better feeling plan at that point. So yeah, that's so important, especially the piece on neurodivergence to really recognize that we all learn differently. We need to just figure out where these pieces fit and that there is a possibility that we're not aligning with what we're setting out to achieve when we do these things. I've always found it interesting in the dog training industry that we have these things that are so standard practice, counter conditioning being a prime example of them, airless learning now coming up in a hot second. Um, Yet we look at human learning, human therapy, human behavior change, in which we are, we know so much and we have so much ability to dive into emotions and emotional change and behavior change and our cognitive abilities around those things. And those are not standard practice. Mm-hmm. And so are we that much ahead of the human world or is there a big piece that we're missing? And the more I search for it, the more I believe that there are big pieces that we are missing about why this isn't standard practice. And because our conversations and our education is limited to often one species, we're not even talking about animals as a whole. As dog trainers, we're dog trainers, or as horse trainers, we're horse trainers. And sometimes we have people who do more. 
Um, I have had the luxury of working with more, but yet the conversations among those different bubbles are very much the same and very much lacking uh, interdisciplinary sourcing that could really benefit us. Because if you went up to any human therapist and you were like, yeah, you could do counter conditioning for your fear, they'd probably look at you like, that is not a thing that we do. And we have some feelings now about extrinsic reinforcement in terms of emotional change and how that all works. And so these are the things that we're going to be diving into in this podcast. (laughs) So buckle up, everybody. We're going to get lots of lots of big feelings in here about this stuff. But again, it's not to say that these things are, you know, inherently wrong, but what can we learn from them and how can we be evolving along these under other industries as well? Are we as an industry in an echo chamber? I think we kind of are. We might be, and particularly because it is an unregulated industry. And so if people aren't having any sort of standard curriculum about how how things work or what the latest research is, and I know that there are certifications that come with continuing education credits and all of those things, those are wonderful. But for the field at large, there's no sort of common set of knowledge. So we don't mean the same thing when we say errorless learning, or even when we say counter conditioning, there are so many nuances that we're not even talking about in the same ways And if we don't do that, how can we possibly then even bring in concepts from other places if we're not even on the same page about the things that we think we do know? Um, So I think there's so much there and excited to get into all of it. I hope so. I hope that it's received that way by others. And, you know, we are certainly trying to give it the nuance that it deserves and also understand that we have opinions in this and are prepared to be entirely wrong, are prepared to be disagreed with. And that's that's totally okay. Um, we're open to all of it. What I really liked at the beginning of the paper that we keep circling back to is that in the introduction, even it says, and I think this so encompasses our message around this and other things is this review is not directed at the question of whether errors in a situation that counts are good. Of course they are not, but rather the question is how during initial learning, during practice and preparation for a test that counts. And one can best get to a state of performance that is optimal and in which errors will not inadvertently occur just when one needs them least and when they will do the most damage. And so should one commit, explore, examine, analyze, and correct errors during learning and practice sessions, or should one avoid errors at all stages of learning? And so it's it's very clear that it's This is not a black and white rule of this is bad, let's throw it out. But where in the process, when does it matter? Is is there a point in the procedure where it makes sense to be practicing errors, where it doesn't make sense? Should we be looking for when we get to that point before we're expecting that competency has really set in and you're ready for the real world? How are we assessing the role of errorless learning in the learning process? Does it carry you all the way to the goal? Is it that introduction piece? I still to this day use it occasionally in the sense of, I think that idea of sometimes we just need to kind of show you something. Sometimes we need to like inform you that an option exists. And so even alongside modeling, we can use some observational learning, but sometimes we set it up so that you kind of do something and then we show you the outcome and it it doesn't have, it's not right or wrong there. It doesn't matter if you do it or not, but in that risk-free environment, we're still kind of setting up to elicit something that wasn't, wasn't really your choice to elicit, but we're encouraging it in a way. And then once you've experienced it, once you've seen the outcome and you got to observe that, then we step back 
and see if you continue to choose that option and you're free to choose other things. So do we have to carry them all the way to that ultimate goal? Can we use it in smaller doses and smaller pieces and manage these risks and still get these other benefits that actually practicing engaging with arrows might give us a benefit in other ways as well. So I I think it does a lovely job of encompassing these pieces that we can still be learning from. I fully agree. I think that also does a nice job of just bringing us back to how do we ask more questions over and over again? How do we ask more questions about in our conversation here in conversations generally and to our dogs and our animals in understanding what they need and want from us? Absolutely. All of the above. And last little piece as we build into that. So the quote is another fundamental question concerns whether the source of an error modulates its efficacy for learning. The literature indicates that although self-generating an error and being exposed to externally presented irrelevant information may seem similar on the surface, important differences may exist. For example, Grimaldi and Kropicki 2012, showed that error generation, as opposed to merely being presented the correct response in a paradigm like that of Cornell AL 2009, had a beneficial effect on later memory for the correct answer. However, when instead of having a participant generate an error, the experimenter presented an incorrect word during what would have been the generation period, memory for the correct answer was harmed. Furthermore, it was also harmful to restrict what the person had to generate as an error. So a constrained alternative was also viewed as harmful to memory. And that really circles back to me for how we construct an errorless learning procedure that we are putting so many constraints on what you can generate as your answer. How is that impacting the learning process? A similar phenomenon has been observed with self-generated as compared to experimenter-presented mistaken items when people were in the tip of their tongue states. Cornell and Metcalf of 2006 noted that self-generated errors, which typically the participants knew were not the correct answers, did not block retrieval of the correct answer as opposed to when no incorrect answer was produced. And I feel like that takes us to that mindset of experimentation that I had just touched on earlier of, you know, it's not the right answer, but you're kind of just, you're throwing things out to get to the right answer. And I, I can think of personally, and I don't know if this is neurodivergent thing, cause I don't know what a neurotypical thing is um, of sometimes not being able to find the word. And so I'll say a bunch of similar stuff. <laughs> I'll just try to like keep rephrasing it and just spitting out stuff that isn't what I'm trying to say until I get to the thing. That's what I'm trying to say. And so when we're in a really restricted process, if you can only do these certain pieces, are we also preventing a retrieval process from our animals throughout the learning process as well? It brings a lot of interesting pieces in. It might not be directly an emotional impact, but a learning impact into that. And what does it do to just give a little bit more leeway? That doesn't mean, you know, free leeway to make all of the irrelevant mistakes. Like you said, relevance is still important. Can we stay within the context, but throw out similar, but not quite it information? What does that do for the process? And is that leading to them feeling bad or these behaviors that we call frustration in animals? Cause we're observing it, right? We're observing that arousal. We're observing the doing of things that is not what we want them to do. Is it what we're labeling it? Is it serving what we think it's serving? And are we taking something away from them and not allowing them to go through that process? Because for me, I do all kinds of stuff like that. My boyfriend all the time is like, why are you upset? I'm like, I'm not upset. I'm just 
just rambling. <laughs> I'm just talking and it comes off a different way. And we don't have that ability to ask, are you upset in quite that clear way? But we do have space to say, how does this serve you when you have it and when you don't have it? And how can I compare the two as well? So really interesting questions that brought up for me in terms of the emotional and the learning impacts. Absolutely. I thought the next sentence was interesting too, which is in contrast, when experimenter presented incorrect answers were given, while people were in tip of the tongue states, the incorrect answers harmed retrieval of the correct answer in comparison with having nothing presented. And that was from Smith and Blankenship in 91. And you might say, well, John, I would never give my dog the incorrect answer on purpose. But A, I think it overarchingly points to the role of teacher as authority figure and the impact that that can have. And also we might not intentionally give a wrong answer, but again, to the difference between a dog professional and a dog owner, dog owners give the wrong information all the time. I still do it every single day. I look back at a video and I'm like, I missed that or, oh, I showed her the wrong thing. And so we do this and we might be harming actually their ability to make sense of things. They already know, they might know the answer. And when we interject intentionally or not, we could be tripping them up. Um, Yep. Yes. And, oh my God, this is, this is going to be a series of episodes. Sorry, everyone. There's too much here. Um, Yes. And. That experience of you have something you're trying to say, or you have something tr- you're trying to get out and somebody says something to you and it gets hard. You're just, you can't get to it now. You're like working your way closer and now it's like gone or you can't get the right word. And you're like, no, that's not the word that I was looking for. Dang it. That does feel frustrating. And so what would it be to be a dog and be in an experience where you are guessing a lot because you're not being told what that end goal is. And so you are operating on assumptions and blind faith in your person that they're guiding you on the right thing. And I think we like to believe that that's a comfortable space for our animals, but I don't operate that way naturally. So I feel like that's uncomfortable for at least a handful of dogs, not saying every dog, there has to be some that feel this way in some dogs or just in some context, like it might be every dog, but some dogs experience it more often than others. That's all. Yeah. And so in that experience, you're making assumptions maybe about where you're going next. And so in that same way, you get handed the car and you're going, I'm making a scarf, but really your human thinks you're making a sock, right? But those early phases look the same. And so you you think you're right. There's some superstition maybe building there. And so you've generated an answer and you're trying to kind of formulate it and spit it out, but you're being told you're wrong. And you're like, no, but I'm not wrong. I'm making a scarf. And they're thinking you're making a sock. And there's this miscommunication happening, but your internal experience is totally not aligned with that. How frustrating would that be? That was such a good metaphor. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. I have to imagine that would be all of the things that we're trying to protect them against, which is the frustration from the errors is the frustration and not being able to express an error. (laughs) It's like... Well, is it an error? Like, is right. it some, do we just have different goals and that's fine? How do we know if we can't ask? Yes. Is it, is it an error? Are we just building different things? And can we then take those two separate things and remerge them without making it a big deal? Um, and yeah, there's, there's so much in that, that I think we just don't dive quite deep enough into. And I, I'm sure some people think, well, we're diving maybe way too deep into this stuff, but are we, I, I don't think so. We're going to grow if we don't ask questions. You know, not everyone has to be interested in the same things. 
So we can explore all we want. Yes. And we're going to listen or not. Um, oh my God. Okay. So that I have so many thoughts on it, but I, I don't have them straight. So I'm going to bring it to those theories on why errors enhance learning. There are a number of different ones that certainly align with some of the things that we talked about. But one of the really interesting ones um, was related to a fear conditioning paradigm. I found this fascinating, this piece that they're talking about, because there is a very valid um, neuroscience piece behind the research that goes into human therapies that I think we don't have for animals. And therefore, that's why we haven't ventured these strategies into how we're working with animals. Uh, we don't have the ability to look at it in quite with quite the same pieces of information and go, sure, this will work. But does that mean it won't? Um I, I don't think so. I think very there's some really interesting basis here. So I'm just going to read. Um, we'll go based on that. So it's under the section on reconsolidation. And the reconsolidation framework was formulated within a fear conditioning parad- paradigm that is entirely different from the present air correction paradigm. And this comes from Dudai, 2012, Lee, 2008, Nader et al., 2000, so a number of resources that agree on this. Um, the reconsolidation framework has been directed at discovering methods to overcome post-traumatic stress disorder and traumatic conditioned fears, and it is compatible with a number of different therapies. Despite a difference in domains, striking similarities exist between the reconsolidation framework and the error correction paradigm. Basic premise is that in order for a conditioned fear to be altered or eradicated, the dysfunctional response first needs to be evoked. Following fear response retrieval, there is a short time window in which the undesirable response can be eradicated or modified and reconsolidated. If the response is not evoked, though, then it stays buried and unchanged. Some similarities between fear conditioning and error correction suggest that applying reconsolidation theory to both domains may be fruitful. The most important of these similarities is the core idea that the undesired response, be it the dysfunctional fear response or the semantic error, needs to be retrieved in order for it to be rendered susceptible to change. The reconsolidation framework is consistent with the gist of the results of the many studies that have shown that the probability of producing the correct answer is greater when the error was first retrieved in conjunction with the new overriding stimulus, as contrasted to when the pre-existing error was not evoked and only the correct answer was provided. And I, that's there's so many interesting things to think about there. Yeah, I highlighted so many things in what you just read. Um, I did note, so the the piece that says the basic premise is that in order for a conditioned fear to be altered or eradicated, I thought the piece there about it being a conditioned fear was really important and also really interesting. So what is a conditioned fear? How does that happen? And how do we think about that in a behaviorist paradigm versus a cognitive paradigm? Yeah, I think the difference is more... It's less behaviorist versus cognitive and more uh, behavior versus naturalist. And so the idea would be conditioned as any learned version of a fear. So whether it's onset is from a misunderstanding, a cognitive distortion, a experience that they had, those things would be considered conditioned fears versus something that you were born with that is maybe neurochemically modulated and would respond to medication, maybe a genetic predisposition, something like that, an anxiety disorder that was, you know, your your mother had and your mother's mother had, and now you were born with it as well. 
Okay. That makes sense. So it's something more based on experiences than like inherent to the working of our brain when we were born kind of a thing. Yes. And that doesn't mean that I mean, conditioning is truly just synonymous to uh, learning in a sense. We've, we've learned this, um, but it is not, you know, an intentional or cognizant process. It is just something that either can happen sometimes from a one-off experience, an extremely traumatic event. Sometimes it is, and the first episode of this podcast is on this, cognitive distortions, which is simply where we, for whatever reason, derive from the information that we have in our environment, we form sort of false predictions or expectations about the ways we interact with the world that make us feel a certain way. And cognitive distortions are often connected to things like anxiety um, because we're predicting that bad things will happen. Even if we don't have evidence that bad things will happen, we're going through these thought processes about that. And it's particularly interesting that they bring this in because reconsolidation is something that we are exploring with reactive dogs in dress rehearsals. So the idea is to create safe space where you can explore what those thoughts are, let them come out, let us, you know, you don't actually have to know. We're not going to get told by the dogs. I think the dog's going to run up and bite my tail. It doesn't matter. Or in lovely Chloe's case, what happens if I go up to the dog and I bite its foot or I bite its tail or I bite its ear? What happens and see that in this very structured environment where it's a stuffed dog and nothing's going to happen, that nothing does happen. And like, what does having the thought and getting to work through it do for you? Yes. Cause I was going to make that clarification that when we talk about the dysfunctional response first needs to be evoked, we're not talking about out on the street with a real life trigger. We're talking about in a safe environment where the person or dog can explore everything you just said. Um, so I love that you brought it there because I was going to make that clarification that we're not talking about taking a dog or a person into the the situation. We're talking about a safe place where they can experience something like successive approximations of the real world experience and kind of explore those. Yes. And it's very different than this idea that I grew up with as well, like with horses, where you have to like make them do the bad thing so that you can punish it and show them that they're not allowed to do the bad thing. That's not at all what's happening here. And even when we're talking about the emotional evoking piece, I think it's always, I always tie it to an inherent cognitive piece, whether we think it is or not. There's always some sort of thought process going on alongside emotions that we're experiencing, whether we are aware of them or we're not aware of them. And so it's not always that we have to like throw you into a panic or we have to explore a dress rehearsal where this fake dog is running at you and we want to evoke and replay a traumatic experience that we think you've had dog because the dog ran up at you the other day. No, we want it to be as passive and just, just enough to kind of adjacently access those thoughts, but like not enough that you're really in it. You're not like feeling the same. Oftentimes we're not witnessing the same nearly amounts of like stress and anxiety. We're not trying to make you stressed, but we want to get to those same neural pathways and reroute them if we can. And at least in the work that I've done with these dress rehearsals, I can't prove that that's exactly what's going on, but I like to believe that it follows the same sort of theories that we see in therapy. Of course, there's so many variables in the same way that we deal with human therapy that I don't think we can adequately measure that, but the results mirror the things that we see in these other realms. And so that is one of those pieces that gives me a lot of cognitive dissonance around errorless learning because of the benefits that I've seen 
to creating safe space for exploration, creating space to have unrestricted access to express what you need to express. And then we take that and we move it into learning. It's just a, it's a whole different process. It is. And, you know, tell me if I'm wrong, because I'm making a connection I'm not wholly certain of here. But when we think about the idea of having the experience, stepping back and observing it and learning that our response may or may not be warranted or accurate or whatever the appropriate descriptor is, I think is somewhat similar to the idea that's in kind of the end of this section in here, that the error doesn't need to be obliterated. It doesn't need to totally go away in order for us to learn. What needs to happen is that we're aware of the error and we can sort of reroute ourselves. Like we have the control over recognizing that this is an inappropriate response or an outsized response to what's happening. Um, And that that's where the value is rather than just correcting the hell out of it. Yes. And so this kind of drives us into more of the practical, how can we apply some of these things that we've been talking about, about how do we address errors? Do we need to address them? How do we guide without guiding? How do we lead without leading? Um, and it, this is one of those ways where the idea may be that we're operating on an assumption and this circles back to kind of agency choice, all the things that we've started discussing a little bit. We have a reactive dog that we're not sure what's fueling that reactivity. There is an assumption that maybe they'd like to get closer to the other dogs, but we don't know why. We can draw a lot of conclusions about that, but we can say that in their current state of behaving of throwing themselves at the end of the leash and screaming, it's not safe to do so and we're not going to give them that freedom. So what choices then can we give to further explore this, but also to take what is clearly a dysfunctional behavior? There can't be anything about that that is pleasant, enjoyable for the dog, that is perpetuating itself from any sort of good place. And in that, without having to show you the right thing, which is walk quietly by my side, no matter what's happening around you, you still get to have feelings, dog, and those will still be addressed in what we're doing. How can we create space to still get to that outcome of, I'd like you to be quiet and cope with things around me, but not just because I told you to do so, but because it feels good to do so, because it is helping you to do so. And we have we bring it full circle to values aligned choice making, right? And dress rehearsals are space to be able to explore errors to determine whether or not values are present in the choices that we're making. And we structure, we have the ability to structure the environment and the outcomes without structuring the dog's choices. And that's the piece that we we don't put the control on. We still have it. We still can take it. It doesn't matter. But when we set things up, like the, we know the fake dog cannot respond back to you. So no matter what you do to it, whatever value or thing you're trying to or expect to evoke or whatever may think you may find in this, you don't find. It, we don't have to engage with the errors at all. And there's no risk involved in that. There's no, oh, I was wrong. In fact, there might even be some relief in that of like, oh, I was wrong. Okay. That didn't even happen, but nothing bad can come of that. Nothing bad can happen. And allowing them to explore that, allowing them to explore those pieces, we also start to find what is valuable. What what do what are you trying to get? How can we start to shape towards those things? Okay. You're trying to um, 
you're moving towards the dog, you're doing a lot of sniffing, but actually you keep moving away and trying to be away for a long time is your ultimate value to actually be away. But something is drawing you over here. We still don't know what that is. Can we let you know that this is actually an option? Do we focus our reinforcement efforts then on the thing that you seem conflicted about versus the thing that you're, you are exploring? What, how do we start to listen to that input and restructure all the choices that we're making while leaving those doors open. So you're not drawn down one path. Now, consistently, you come into this situation with a whole new skill set, a whole new repertoire. You are able to construct your own appropriate interaction that we don't have to micromanage anymore. We don't have to tell you, go up and target their butt and turn away and hand target to me and then sit by me. And then I'm going to give you a treat and do all this micromanaging. Now you can navigate the social environment, and we can sit back and remove the scaffolding and go out into the real world and live it. Because the dog has what they need to get what they want in ways that are acceptable to us. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Oh man. That also took me down the um, classical conditioning rabbit hole that we've been in, in terms of creating emotional change. And that is definitely for a different episode, but wait till we get there. That'll blow, blow people's minds. It took me weeks to get it. <laughs> it took me years. So you're doing better than me. Well, uh, I have to teaching me. So <laughs> it, yeah, it, it's another one of those areas where there's just a lot of cognitive dissonance and a lot of things that we say and maybe not sound enough evidence that it is what it is in all of the circumstances. That's not to say that we aren't counter conditioning dogs. I think that we are many circumstances, but I think sometimes we lack language and explanations and possibilities for how things could be changing. So we default to explanations that we have in our repertoire and that that's fine too. You know, there's, there's, that's not a value judgment, but I think that there's so much to be gained in exploring these things further exploring these possibilities and what they can bring for us and just, just pushing it further. I don't know. That's our goal. Push it further. Um, have we covered everything or do we have more? There's, there's well, I mean, we definitely have more, but like right now, so much ground, which is really good. Um, I hope you guys explore it with us and, you know, we could be entirely wrong on this stuff, but I just want to see more of these conversations had around the possibilities that these experiences could exist and how could we address them. And I certainly don't have all the ideas. I I want to hear other people's ideas about it. If this were true, what could we do about it so that we have more options to pull from even? Sam, if this has someone thinking about these concepts, whether or not they agree, just engaging with them, I would love to hear from that um, social media or email or whatever it is. I would be so interested to hear uh, feedback in either direction on the concepts we're talking about. Yes. And not to push this in every single episode, but just because I think it is a much more flexible space to be heard as well. Um, The R plus 2.0 community, that's what we built it for so that we can all, if we're having these questions or we're thinking about these ideas, have a space that is equally judgment-free to talk about it, to chew these ideas over no matter where you are in this thought journey, not to be convinced of any perspective, but to explore these thoughts at your own pace, but also get to talk about them with others and 
get other perspectives if you want them or just to share your perspective with us. We would really love it. And so we do these um, topic discussions on Zoom where we all meet as a group and they're very informal. We also have virtual hangouts, which are extra informal um, and you can bring whatever you want into those and those can go in absolutely any direction. The topic discussions are a little more focused on a specific thing. We've got one coming up on emotional change. Certainly these things fall into line with that. There's so many, and we take suggestions as well. If you're like, hey, but I would love to talk more about agency, or we hear five people that want to talk more about agency, come join us. We'll set up one of those so that we can dive more into these things as well. Absolutely, 